0: Beginning in 2008, the people of Gaza undergo a succession of brutal Israeli massacres. The first major massacre occurs in 2008. Israel killed about 1,200 Gazans, including 350 children. It destroyed approximately 6,300 homes and it decimated the infrastructure of Gaza. And then in 2014, the most savage of the massacres in Gaza, it was called Operation Protective Edge. At the time, the head of state was Benjamin Netanyahu.
1: That's Norman Finkelstein, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Norman Finkelstein, a brief history of the Israeli Palestinian conflict. The world's eyes are on Gaza now. It is ruled by Hamas. Hamas is an acronym in Arabic for Islamic Resistance Movement. A bit of history Gaza came under Israeli military control in 1967. That continued for 38 years until 2005. Since then, it has been subjected to an Israeli-imposed siege and blockade and a series of bloody wars, which Israel says, in self-defense, is responding to Hamas rocket attacks. But nothing compares to the death and destruction of the current conflict. More than 10,000 Palestinians and 1,400 Israelis have been killed. Without a knowledge of history, we are susceptible to manipulation. To give background is not to condone or excuse savagery on either side. It's to provide understanding of the origins of the conflict. As UN Secretary General Guterres said, the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. Our guest today is Norman Finkelstein. He's a distinguished independent scholar and author of many books. He's long focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He's the subject of the documentary film, American Radical. He spoke in mid-October. And now, Norman Finkelstein...
0: In as succinct a way as possible, I'm going to run through the history of the Israel-Palestine conflict with a focus as I proceed to the Gaza part of the Israel-Palestine conflict and to just give a rudimentary picture of what is Gaza. Gaza is 25 miles long, it's five miles wide. Gaza is inhabited by 2.1 million people. Of those 2.1 million people, 70% are refugees or descendants of refugees. Half of Gaza comprises children. Gaza is among the most densely populated places on God's earth it's more densely populated than Tokyo. So when you hear Israel saying it wants to empty out the northern sector, your imagination should conjure the image of among the most densely populated places on earth now becoming twice as densely populated. Nobody can go into Gaza nobody can get out of Gaza, with the rarest exceptions. You have a medical condition, very difficult to get out. If you don't have a medical condition, you're not getting out. And also, economically, 50 percent of Gaza is unemployed. Among youth, it's 60 percent are unemployed. I should mention Humanitarian organizations have described half the population as being suffered from severe food insecurity, which is to say about half of Gaza suffers not from the starvation, but suffers from daily hunger. If you put all the pieces together, you have a blockade that's lasted now for about two decades. Nobody goes in, nobody goes out, with the rarest of exceptions. Half the population is unemployed, among youth it's 60%. Half of the population is chronically suffering from hunger. When you add all those pieces together, it doesn't come altogether as a surprise that the conservative Prime Minister of the UK, David Cameron, described Gaza as quote, an open-air prison. Now, one of Israel's most eminent sociologists, Baruch Kimberling, at the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, He since passed, but he described Gaza as, quote, the largest concentration camp ever. Somewhere between open-air prison, one pole of the spectrum, and largest concentration camp ever, that's Gaza. The young men who burst through the gates of Gaza on October 7th, probably, almost certainly, that was the first time they had ever breathed free air. They were born into a concentration camp. If you use Professor Kimmerling's terminology or they were born into a prison. That, I think, is the essential background for trying to understand the unfolding of events since October 7th. There are obviously three dimensions beginning October 7th. The first dimension is the factual side. What happened? Some aspects of it remain murky. But the general picture, I think, is more or less clear. There will be more precision in detail, but I don't think there will be any great revelations. Then there is the legal side. What does Israel have the right to do under international law and what doesn't it have the right to do? And then there is the moral side. And as you all know, law often lags behind morality. And so, the moral dimension is not synonymous with the legal dimension. So, the history. There's always a kind of partisanship embedded in deciding where to begin. Some people want to begin with the kingdom of Judea some 2,000 years ago. Other people want to begin with the... Arab inhabitation of Palestine, and the Zionist settlers who came over to displace them. For reasons of time, I'm going to forgo either or both of those starting points, and I'll choose my own arbitrary, and I admit it to be arbitrary, starting point, departure point. There were two communities In Palestine, by 1947, there was a Jewish community. It went by the title of the Yeshuv, and it constituted roughly 600,000 Jews or Zionists, whichever term you prefer. And the second community consisted of Arabs, or if you prefer Palestinian Arabs, and that community amounted to roughly 1,300,000. Since the early part of the 20th century, there was some cooperation, but mostly, I think it's fair to say, there was a competition and a conflict between the indigenous population of Palestine at the time, the Palestinian Arabs, and the Jewish settlers or colonizers, at the time it was called the Jewish Colonization Society, or uh, Jewish colonizers, uh, there was a competition, and eventually that competition became a full-fledged conflict. It was clear after World War II that a resolution to the conflict had to be found. And originally the issue was managed by the British, what was called the British Mandate over Palestine. Uh, After World War II, the British despaired of finding a resolution to this conflict between the Jewish and the Arab communities. And so they threw the ball, so to speak, into the court of the United Nations. The United Nations sent over several fact-finding committees. The British had their own fact-finding committee. There was a large number of voluminous uh, and I would say quite impressive reports that were produced. And at some point, the General Assembly had to find some sort of resolution. And that resolution came in the form of UN Resolution 181. It's sometimes called the Partition Resolution. And the Partition Resolution, you can say, I think it's fair to say, it wasn't attempting to find a formula based on justice. It wasn't a moral inquiry or a moral resolution, it was very much approached as a practical, pragmatic problem. There are these two communities here, they don't get along, their fundamental aspirations differ in fundamental ways, and there doesn't seem to be any prospect that they can get along. And so the decision was made by the majority. The majority opinion was to partition Palestine between those two communities, the Palestinian Arab and the Zionist Jewish communities. According to the partition, the Jewish community would comprise approximately 56% of Palestine. That is to say, 56% was allocated to the Jewish community, uh, even as the population was 600,000, and 44% was allocated to the Arab population, even as its population was about 1,300,000. Well, the Arab side formally did not accept the partition resolution, on two grounds, ground number one, they were the indigenous population, ground number two, they were the majority population. The Jewish side formally accepted the partition, but they were still determined to control or gain territorial control over the whole land of Israel which the Zionist movement regarded as belonging to it. In any event, the conflict quickly degenerated after the partition resolution. It quickly degenerated into open warfare, not just between the two communities in Palestine, but also with the neighboring Arab states. As a consequence of that, Warfare, which sometimes called the first Arab-Israeli war, there were two basic results which bear on the conflict today. The first result was there was a mass expulsion from the area that became Israel. There was a mass expulsion of the Palestinian Arab population. Roughly, the estimates are roughly 90% of the population within the area that became Israel. Roughly 90% of the population was expelled, and of that, it comprised about 750,000 Palestinian Arabs. Of those 750,000, roughly 250,000 Palestinians were expelled from the area that became Israel and they ended up, of the 750,000, about a third of the 750,000 who were expelled, they ended up in Gaza. And they overwhelmed numerically the actual uh, population, Arab population in Gaza. The bottom line there, and here I'm going to just fast forward to the present, and then get back to where we were. The bottom line is, Gaza is overwhelmingly a refugee population. So, roughly 70% of the people of Gaza are classified under international law as refugees or descendants of refugees. So, one fact you have to always bear in mind when you hear the word Gaza, that the population of Gaza is overwhelmingly a refugee population, and that overwhelming refugee population, they began, so to speak, their life in Gaza already as refugees. So when you hear now in the news about the possibility of an ethnic cleansing of Gaza for most, for about 70 percent Refugees and descendants of refugees, we're talking about a twice over expulsion. Okay, let's go back to right after the 1948 war. I said there were two major consequences for our purposes first, the mass expulsion, and secondly, Israel, now it's declared itself a state, Israel did not abide by the UN resolution of 56% being allocated to it, it expanded its borders to 80% of Palestine. The only areas of the what's called British Mandated Palestine, the only areas that did not come under Israeli control were what's called the West Bank, including East Jerusalem, and the Gaza Strip. With those two exceptions, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, uh, Israel now controlled all of uh, historic or British mandated Palestine. Now, for reasons of time, we're going to fast forward from 1948 to 1967. In 1967, there was another conflict between Israel and its Arab neighbors. It's sometimes called the Six-Day War. I prefer the June 1967 war. During the June 1967 war, Israel now expanded its borders a second time, and it now controlled the whole of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, and those two areas, the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, under international law constituted occupied territories. And there is a large body of international law on the legal status, the rights and duties of an occupying power uh, in the course of its occupation. Uh, They are usually embodied in what's called the Hague Regulations and the Fourth Geneva Convention. Now, just as in 1947, the United Nations again came to play a major role in trying to find a solution to this seemingly intractable problem. The A problem was first debated and disputed in the U.N. General Assembly, a resolution couldn't be found, and then it was thrown into the court of the U.N. Security Council, and the U.N. Security Council in November 1967 produced what's still considered the landmark resolution After 181, in 1947, the second landmark resolution, which still constitutes under international law, the legal basis for trying to resolve the conflict they produced or passed without uh, any dissenting votes unanimously, UN Resolution 242. UN Resolution 242 had two prongs. Prong number one was the international law principle based in the UN Charter and stated in the preambular paragraph to UN Resolution 242. Preambular paragraph simply means the preamble. And the preamble to UN Resolution 242 states, quote, It's inadmissible to acquire territory by war. In accordance with that principle, Israel was obliged to relinquish control of the territories it had acquired during the 1967 war. Those territories being, and again, I'll beg your indulgence, but for my repeating myself, but unless you get the basic facts, everything else is just mystical. So let me again reiterate the basic facts. Under international law, it being inadmissible to acquire territory by war, Israel was legally bound under international law to relinquish control of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip. That you might call the quid in the quid pro quo. Uh, Quid pro quo, basically, your obligation, their obligation. The quo was... Israel is a state under international law. It's a member state of the United Nations and therefore it has the same rights and duties as any other member state of the United Nations. And therefore, since the UN Charter calls for peaceful relations between states, the Arab states had the obligation to recognize Israel's right to live at peace with its neighbors, and those were the two, the mutually, uh, uh, the, the, the two preconditions for a resolution of the conflict, and it sometimes came to be called the Land for Peace terms for resolving the conflict. Israel had to relinquish the control over the territories it had acquired. The Arabs had to recognize Israel's right to live at peace with its neighbors in the region. I didn't mention the fact that in the course of the June 1967 war, Israel not only conquered the West Bank and Gaza, it also conquered the Egyptian Sinai, and it conquered the Syrian Golan Heights. I'm going to leave that aside. As I said, I want to hone in on why we're uh, here today, namely the issue of Gaza. So that was the formula, full land, full withdrawal in exchange for a full peace. That was the formula that was presented by the UN and it's still the Security Council and it's still the basis for any resolution of the conflict. Beginning, now I'm going to now hone in just on the Palestinians and I'll get to Gaza in a moment. The Palestinians at that point, their leadership was called the Palestine Liberation Organization. It was abbreviated the PLO. And the central figure, the key figure in the PLO was a person named Yasser Arafat. Beginning in the early 1970s, the Palestine Liberation Organization signaled that it was prepared to accept the terms of UN Resolution 242. That is to say, it was prepared to recognize Israel as a state in the region with all the rights that accrue to a state, namely the right to live at peace with its neighbors. And the Palestinians demanded in return and this was endorsed by the international community, The right, their right in return to exercise their self-determination as a people within the West Bank and Gaza, within that 20% of historic Palestine, which Israel was duty-bound to relinquish control over and which the Palestinians now acquiesced would constitute the territorial borders of their state. So the Palestinians had, by 19, the early 1970s, the Palestinians had met their duty, their obligation under international law to recognize Israel as a state And they expected, as UN Resolution 242 stated, that then they would have their right, having acknowledged their duty, they now wanted their right to exercise self-determination within the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and Gaza. The Israelis, on the other hand, were determined to keep all of what they regarded as their quote-unquote historic homeland, and they didn't want to relinquish control of large parts of the West Bank and any of Gaza. They were quite determined, and they dug in their heels not to accept those terms for resolving the conflict. International pressure then began to build on Israel to accept the Palestinian recognition of them as a state and to carry out a withdrawal from the territories they occupied. Come 1982, Israel came under a lot of pressure to acknowledge the Palestinian willingness to settle the conflict what was called, there's a very good book, it's called Dilemmas of Security. And it's written by an Israeli political scientist who has since passed named Avner Yaniv. And Avner Yaniv uh, wrote in the book that Israel was faced with a major dilemma by the end of the 1970s and the early 80s. And now I'm using his term, He said the major dilemma was the Palestinian peace offensive, in quotation marks. The Palestinians were determined to settle the conflict in accordance with international law, but that would have compelled Israel to carry out a withdrawal from the territories which it considered belonged to it by historic right and that it was not going to relinquish control of. In 1982, in June 1982, Israel contrived a casus belli, a pretext, to launch a war in Lebanon. And in the course of that war, which began in 1982 and climaxed in September 1982, Israel killed, the estimates are, between 15 and 20,000 Palestinians, overwhelmingly civilians. After the war, or at the end of the war, it climaxed in the major massacres of Palestinians in refugee camps in Lebanon. Uh, You can check it on your own because there's a voluminous literature on it. It's called the Sabra and Shatila Massacres. At the end of the Sabra and Shatila Massacres, the PLO was effectively defeated and it was forced into exile. At that point, 1980, uh, we're talking about roughly 1982, there was a feeling that the Palestine question had now been eliminated. The Arab states and the international community took very little interest in it, and the people in the West Bank and Gaza were now left to what you might call their own devices they realized there was not going to be any international pressure exerted on Israel, on the one hand, and on the other hand, unless they did something on their own, that is to say, took their fate into their own hands, this occupation would go on through eternity.
1: You're listening to Norman Finkelstein, a brief history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This is Independent Alternative Radio. For copies of this program, call us at 1-800-444-1977. Again, that's one 800 1977 Or go online, our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternative alternativeradio.org.
0: And so in December 1987, December 7th, 1987, a non-violent civil revolt erupted first in Gaza, and then that civil revolt quickly spread to the West Bank, and that came to be called the First Intifada. Israel was determined to crush that revolt and brought to bear massive force. The defense minister at the time, Yitzhak Rabin. Formulated the slogan under the aegis of which Israel carried out its massive repression. He called for the use of, and now I'm quoting the phrase, force, might, and beatings to repress this civil, nonviolent revolt. The fact of the matter is that the Israelis were successful. This isn't the first time in history, obviously that might triumphed over right, and that eventually led to what came to be called the Oslo Accord. The Oslo Accords were signed in 1993, uh, September 13th, 1993. The essence of the Oslo Accord was that the PLO formally recognized Israel on paper And the Palestinians got virtually nothing in return. All they, because they were defeated during the First Intifada and the victor gets the spoils, Uh, what the Palestinians got in return was a promise of something in the future. That was really the essence of it. There was supposed to be a five year interim period in which. Israel and the and the Palestine Liberation Organization would find a resolution to the conflict, but that never happened. And Israel was able successfully to recruit the PLO uh, as its the expression that came to be used as its subcontractor among the Palestinians. Uh, the PLO. Took the perquisites of power, namely the monies, the VIP status, and all the other assorted uh, perquisites of power, and they became what the current term is the Palestinian Authority. And the Palestinian Authority is basically an administrative and police network uh, that acts at Israel's behest. I'll fast forward now to 2006. So far I've talked about the Israel-Arab dimension of the problem, then the Israel-Palestine dimension of the problem, and now I'm going to reduce our scope even more and focus on the Gaza dimension of the problem. In 2006, there were parliamentary elections in the West Bank and Gaza. And the international community, in particular the United States, exhorted all Palestinians to participate in these elections. Two surprising things happened. Number one, Hamas, the Islamic movement, agreed to participate in the elections. Number 2 to everybody's surprise including Hamas Hamas won the elections Jimmy Carter the former US president he was one of the eyewitnesses to the elections and he called them I'm quoting him now completely honest and fair elections immediately as Hamas won the election Israel, followed by the U.S. and the EU, uh, imposed a brutal blockade on Gaza. It punished the people of Gaza for electing the wrong party into power. And that's the beginning. You'll often hear about the blockade of Gaza. 2006 marks the beginning of the blockade and the blockade was imposed because the Palestinian people were told to carry out elections, and they did carry out the elections as they were told to do, but then they elected the wrong party into power. In fact, at the time, Hillary Clinton, the senator from New York, she lamented that the U.S. made a mistake and it didn't rig the election. In any event, after that, Hamas was now in power, a blockade was imposed on Gaza, and Hamas began to undergo what you might call a political evolution. They clearly made statements, including to Jimmy Carter, that they were prepared to negotiate a settlement with Israel on on the basis of the terms of international law and UN Resolution 242. Those diplomatic efforts by Hamas reached an impasse because Israel didn't accept the legitimacy of Hamas as a negotiating partner. From there on in, things begin to rapidly deteriorate. Beginning in 2008, the people of Gaza now start to undergo a succession of brutal Israeli massacres. There were several massacres preceding 2008-9. I don't have time to go through all of them in detail, but the first major massacre occurs in 2008. It begins on December 26, 2008 and it lasts until January 17th. It's called Operation Cast Lead. In the course of Operation Cast Lead, Israel killed about 1,200 Gazans, including 350 children. It destroyed approximately 6,300 homes, and it decimated the infrastructure of Gaza. Then there were several other massacres, including on board the humanitarian flotilla, led the flagship of which was the Mavi Marmara. On May thirty-first, a humanitarian flotilla was headed to Gaza. It had ten thousand tons of basic necessities for the people of Gaza, who were suffering under the inhuman, illegal blockade of Gaza. And uh, the flotilla was attacked under international waters by Israeli commandos. And by the end of the attack in the dead of night, uh, eight passengers were killed. Then in 2012, there was another Israeli operation against Gaza called Operation Pillar of Defense. And then in July-August 2014, there was the most savage of the massacres in Gaza, it was called Operation Protective Edge. At the time, the head of state for that particular massacre was Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, today in the New York Times, Benjamin Netanyahu was described as essentially a peacenik who only, uh, in his past, he was only inclined towards what the New York Times called targeted operations. And the New York Times described what happened in 2014, uh, Operation Protective Edge, the New York Times described it as, quote, limited in nature. Well, other people had different opinions of that limited operation. First of all, let me give you the statistics. Israel killed about 2,200 Gazans, of which approximately 550 were children. Israel destroyed 18,000 homes in Gaza. The head of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Peter Maurer, he went to Gaza after the end of the uh, conflict. And he said, bear in mind, we're talking about the head of the International Committee of the Red Cross. His job description is to visit combat zones. And he said publicly that never in his professional life had he ever witnessed the magnitude of destruction that he saw in Gaza. This is what the New York Times calls an operation that was limited in nature. In the same way, Sarah Roy, the very honorable scholar at Harvard University, she's the daughter of survivors of Auschwitz concentration camp. She's written the definitive economic study of Gaza, the de-development the de- of Gaza. Uh, And she said she had never seen such economic, psychological, and physical destruction as she witnessed in 2014 with Operation Protective Edge. In 2018, the people of Gaza, they decided to try something new. Uh, Many people in the international community uh, had exhorted the people of Gaza, and the Palestinians generally, but the people in Gaza, to try civil disobedience. That armed struggle, as it were, was not yielding any results, so to try civil disobedience. Now, as I've already told you, they tried civil disobedience once during the First Intifada. Now, the people of Gaza suffering under this blockade in 2018 tried it again. It was called the Great March of Return. And the Great March of Return, like the First Intifada, started out overwhelmingly nonviolent. The Palestinians attempted nonviolent civil disobedience. And what did Israel do? Well, the record is quite well documented in a UN report. And also by Human Rights Watch, Uh, the U.N. report found that Israel was targeting children in the Great March of Return. They were targeting medical personnel, they were targeting journalists, and they were targeting people with physical disabilities those who participated in the Great March in return, who were in wheelchairs or on crutches. And the evidence showed that Israeli snipers were overwhelmingly targeting the ankles of the demonstrators so as to inflict permanent life-changing disabilities on them. So, having said that, I suspect there are many Palestinians now who regret what happened on October seventh. So now let's begin with the questions and hopefully you can organize yourselves, form a line, and query me. Thanks for the cogent lecture, Dr. Finkelstein. What's your advice for young Americans who want to revive an anti-imperialist movement? I do feel just briefly that your generation, the young people in the audience, is facing three unprecedented challenges or two of the three are unprecedented the third one you're facing in the most severe form Uh, number one my generation obviously had no awareness of the problem of climate change so that's new to your generation number two my generation experienced relative economic prosperity for all except maybe 20% of Americans, what came to be called the other America. Your generation is just the reverse. 80% of your generation has no future. Your generation has a precarious present and a futureless future. There's about 20% in my generation who didn't experience the prosperity. There's about 20% in your generation that is experiencing the prosperity. So that too is unprecedented. Number three, there's the danger of nuclear conflagration, the annihilation of the planet, not because of climate change, but because of nuclear weapons. And right now, as we speak, there is a very high possibility, I won't call it a high probability, I wouldn't say a high possibility, that both in the Ukraine and the current conflict in the Middle East, it will climax in the termination of the human race. So, I believe that your generation has very significant challenges that it has to confront if it wants to have any future. On the specific question of what's going on now I believe the two demands have to be very simple and winnable. And the two demands have to be an immediate ceasefire, number one, and an end to the blockade of Gaza, number two. Those have to be the immediate demands in order to uh, prevent what at this point seems to be a genocidal plan by the state of Israel. All you have to do is connect the two statements that were issued on October 8th. Number one, Prime Minister Netanyahu stated that this was going to be a long war, longer than the previous ones. Now, Operation Protective Edge lasted 51 days. That means at a bare minimum, we're talking about 51 days plus. Number two, the defense minister stated that no water, electricity, fuel, or food would be admitted to Gaza. If you connect those two statements, it means that the population of Gaza, 2.1 million people, of whom 1 million are children, will not have any access to food, water, electricity, or fuel for a bare minimum of 51 days. And I don't think it can be Rationally contested that what Israel announced on October 8th was a plan of genocide. So the two goals have to be immediate ceasefire and the blockade. What's the best way to understand Hamas? When Hamas was elected, It was not necessarily because people agreed with its political or ideological orientation. The Palestinian Authority, the successor to the PLO, was riddled with corruption, and the people in the occupied Palestinian territories had grown disaffected from the Palestinian Authority and they elected Hamas not as I said necessarily because of its ideology or because of its political inclinations but because it was relatively speaking an honest organization and they ran in a apparently a quite honest way A lot of the social institutions in the Gaza Strip, the charitable organizations, and it was on that basis that they won those parliamentary elections. Now it's also true that they became over time very repressive. They had alienated a large part of the Gaza uh, population and as I understand it, there was also degrees of privilege, economic privilege, that they now enjoyed, which caused resentment among the rest of the population. But the bottom line is they were never given a chance. And for those of you who know history, that's quite common. When the Popular Unity government was elected in Chile, it was a socialist coalition led by Salvador Allende. The United States took extreme offense at the result of the election. And Henry Kissinger, who was the Secretary of State at the time said, quote, we are going to make the economy scream we are going to cause so much dissatisfaction that we will, that the people of Chile will overthrow the government, which is what they did on September 11th, 1973. The same thing happened with Cuba, with the blockade imposed on Cuba, except in that case, even though they made the economy scream, the government was not overthrown. They did the same thing with Nicaragua, the Sandinistas, and that eventually succeeded. In 1990, the Sandinistas were voted out of power. So that's a very common tactic. The same thing, I should say, happened in Egypt with Morsi. Uh, In his election, uh, there was effectively a capital strike in Egypt to destroy the economy and create the discontent which would then be exploited to eject the Muslim Brotherhood from power in Egypt. So I don't want to pass judgment on Hamas as a uh, government, as a government, which is separate from its ideology and its political inclinations. As a government, it was never given a chance. The day after it was elected, the brutal blockade was imposed on Gaza. Also, to say that there are some situations which don't allow for a neat moral resolution. Real life is more complicated in many situations than simple formulas but I would say the historical judgments are complicated, and I don't want either to speak for Palestinians or to pretend that I know what history's judgment is going to be. You were
1: just listening to Norman Finkelstein, a brief history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. He spoke in mid-October. Norman Finkelstein is a distinguished independent scholar and author of many books. He's long focused on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are an independent progressive nonprofit in our 38th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. We feature voices rarely heard in the corporate media, such as Phyllis Bennis, Arundhati Roy, and Noam Chomsky. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting, alternativeradio.org. For copies of today's program, Norman Finkelstein, A Brief History of the Israeli-Palestinian Conflict, and for Noam Chomsky's classic book, On the Origins of the Conflict, called Fateful Triangle, just call us one 800 That's one 800 1977 You can order online our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. Printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program are free of charge. Just call us at one 800 444 one nine seven seven. Special thanks to jolly and the Media Education Foundation. Joech is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. Thank you for listening. We go out with Emil Matluti singing in Arabic, "A Dream."